This morning, our focus will be the glory of God. We sing about it. We pray for it. It's in our catechisms that we might live to it. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We know that we're commanded to live a a glory-centric life. Not our own, but God's glory. What do we know of God's glory? Have you seen it? This past week, has your life been glorious? Has your week been glorious? Do you anticipate glory this coming week? Well, that could be a challenge. And I hope this text will help us orient our lives more toward God and his glory. That we might even pray, and we might pray this morning, like Moses, Lord, show me your glory. We might note that seeing God's glory is a dangerous prospect. If you think in the Old Testament how God's glory manifested, you think of Moses himself. He needed divine protection when he prayed that prayer. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock, and he saw just the back of God's glory, if you will, because it was too dangerous. He couldn't live if he viewed it in full. And the Old Testament came in these theophanies or at the tabernacle when um, the uh, sacrifice is made and God's glory is manifest before them or the the terrible awesome sight of Sinai the darkness and the fire there that the people were afraid to go near to the mountain or at the temple God's glory comes and brings uh, fire down to consume Solomon's sacrifice and his glory fills the temple. These are times when God makes himself very present with the purpose that his people would be assured that he is with them. He's going to continue to be with them or that he will be faithful in the future to his covenant promises. And so if you would turn with me to the New Testament in John chapter 2, our portion this morning will be the occasion of the Lord's first miracle and the wedding of Cana. So let's read together John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Brethren, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Our Father, we come before you in Christ's name. And we ask that you would be present with us this morning. And we know that you have great power. That you are worthy to be worshipped. And that you can take whatever weakness, anxieties, tiredness, burdens that we come with, that we might be filled with, and you are able to transform them and do a great work among us. And so we pray that you would. God, might you come and help preacher and hearer alike, that I might proclaim your truth in faithfulness, and that we all might receive grace upon grace from you. Open our eyes so that we may see, give us ears to hear 
willing hearts, obedient hearts. We pray, our God, for the glory of King Jesus, and we pray that his name might be lifted up in our midst, and we commit all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in the New Testament, we have a a different kind of the manifest presence of God. We have Jesus Christ. We have the God-man. He is, as uh, Pastor Hill read previously, is the image of the invisible God. The writer of the Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. John's gospel is the most glory-saturated gospel in the New Testament. He begins with similar grand revelations about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us that Jesus started in eternity past. He was existing in perfect harmony with Almighty God, his Father. In verse 3, he says that he is the creator of life itself. He says in verse 9, he's the light of the world. In verse 14, we see, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 17, he tells us that John the Baptist had uh, such a reverence for Christ that he considers his very sandals to be too sacred to touch. It's as if his sandals were untouchable, like the Ark of the Covenant. But there's also a great tension here in John. And we realize that in chapter 1, verse 11, when John starts to describe how he came to his own people, but he was rejected by his own people. Jesus didn't come in some radiant uh, outward way because we find that when he was in the crowd amongst uh, the people there looking on at John the Baptist, uh, he was unknown. Only John perceived him in the crowd, uh, verse 29 says. Otherwise, his appearance just blended right in. There are few who saw his true identity. And in chapter 1, verse 41, we find that Andrew recognized that. He was one of them, and he goes and tells his brother, we have found the Messiah. Well, Jesus hadn't performed any miracles to this point. He was an unknown quantity, but Andrew was convinced. Verse 49, we find that Nathaniel was convinced enough to say, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And in a way, all of chapter 1 in John is building up to this very first miracle that Jesus ever performs in chapter 2. John is concerned to reveal Jesus to us as the true Messiah, the everlasting God, to show us how and when his glory was manifested, where they saw it, and how it was that it was full of grace and truth. And it's at this wedding in Chapter 2, in an out-of-the-way village in Galilee, that a quantum drop of his divine glory was unleashed into the world to shine upon men. It was astounding, but only a few, and hardly more than a handful of people here ever knew at this point that uh, Jesus had done anything spectacular at all. So where's the glory here at the wedding of Canaan? John says his, his glory was manifested here among them, but where's the thunder? Where's the fire? What does John mean for us to see about the glory of Jesus Christ at Cana? God in the flesh, and yet there's a strange quietness here about this glory. Why is this the first sign to prove that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I trust that God will help us to see it. And we'll look at it in uh, five parts here, not all the same uh, length as we consider this. But looking at the first two verses, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So note just briefly the circumstances of this wedding. We have the timing of it in John's sequence, tracing the travel of Jesus, if you will. He's been in eternity. 
He's been in Bethany, and he's been in Galilee. Now he's in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus has called five disciples by this point, most recently Nathaniel. He and his disciples are walking uh, for three days, and it's on this third day since um, calling Nathaniel that uh, there is this wedding. The place is about nine miles from Nazareth. It's a small village, Cana of Galilee. It was not prominent in Jesus' day, and it, it is not known today. Uh, there were the people at this wedding. Mary was there, Jesus, his disciples. This was likely a family wedding, even as Mary's participation, as we'll see late, later, it seems like she had some role here. She was um, serving in some way, an assistant to this master of the feast, the, the host. Uh, she seems to be up on the latest. She gives orders to the servants and so forth. And so those are the people. The wedding itself, we need to consider what weddings were like back then. A little bit different than today. Uh, Weddings can be a big deal today, but this was a very big deal. This would have been a week-long celebration. There was feasting throughout that time. They had not just an MC, like you might find at a, a wedding reception today, but it was attended by a master of the banquet. In other words, a head waiter. And then a team of servants who would ensure that the plates kept coming and the wine kept flowing. Notice the significance of Jesus attending this wedding. First, simply his, his presence. By being there, Jesus is dignifying this wedding ceremony, this occasion. <laughs> Of course, at this point, Jesus is an an unhonored guest, if you will, not an honored guest. The world likes to ooh and ah at, you know, celebrities um, crashing a wedding, attending a wedding. I remember in in New Jersey, we had President Donald Trump came and attended a wedding not far from us. And there is something spectacular about that, having power, influence, join you for, for such a personal occasion. But Jesus is relatively unknown. Though he looks like every other guest, there's really a king in their midst, right? The most noble man, he gets no no special seat, no place of honor, gives no speech. Jesus didn't have to go to this wedding, but he accepts the invitation. And in so doing, he sanctifies the marriage. He performs Many miracles, John tells us later. How many miracles did he perform? Too many to count. Too many to write down. But he chooses this wedding as the location for his first. He blessed the wedding. He dignified it. Might we say he glorified marriage by his presence here. We are warned in the New Testament that some Christians will try to prohibit marriage but Jesus approves of it. He dignified it. We can also see one other aspect of the significance of his attendance is that it distinguished him from John the Baptist, who is the the feature of chapter 1 in John. But John would have us um, to see this shift here from John the Baptist to Christ. With John the Baptist, we might say, uh, have accepted an invitation to this wedding, it's unlikely that John ever would have received an invitation to, uh, to a wedding at all. Uh, he wasn't one to make friends. He had a strange, austere lifestyle, lived out in the wilderness. He dressed funny. He ate funny. He had stern preaching. And so it didn't gain him many friends. It caused stirs among the people. And as John the Apostle develops this revelation of Jesus Christ, he's moving away from John the Baptist's ministry. It's the start of Jesus' public ministry. And so here we have not a wilderness preacher withdrawn from society, but we have God dwelling with man. We have God present with his people, feasting with his family. What could be more natural? Just after this wedding, we have uh, Jesus 
going to cleanse the temple at Jerusalem. But here, before he's found at the temple, again, we might think that's fitting. This glorious son of God, the creator of the universe, he's going to, if he comes to earth, he's going to be found at the temple. And he is in his purging zeal. But before that, he's found at a wedding with his providing mercy. And in this way, it's perfectly fitting that Jesus would attend this wedding. But in another way, it would have been entirely out of place at the end of Jesus' ministry. Think about it. Jesus' life was primarily marked by what? Not celebration and, and feasting. His was a, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His life was one of suffering. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't come to earth to have a good time and show us how to really live it up, but to save his people from their sins. And yet, as we'll see, Jesus does everything at the right time. Nothing was out of place in his ministry. And so from the significance of Jesus attending, we'll just pause and, and consider how we need Christ in all of life. Jesus sanctifies all of life. We need him not just at our funerals, but at our weddings. Many people are, are drawn in the shadow of death or the pains of suffering. Many people fear the, fear, feel their need for religion. To, to draw close to God in those hard times. But when our days are full and prosperous, we need him there as well. So let's press on to the second point here. The wine ends in chapter 2, verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So first we have the the problem of no more wine. We might imagine um, we just had a a picnic yesterday that was a, a joyous time, time of refreshment and fellowship. You might think what would happen if we ran out of drinks at uh, at that occasion. That might be unfortunate. Someone might go to the store and get some more, bring it back. It's not an emergency. Might have already had our fill. Might think of a a marathon if they ran out of water for the runners. That's not good, but again, not a crisis. Stores nearby and so forth. Um, Maybe it's a hiking trip, and we've been out longer than we thought we would be, and the water bottles are empty and it's an arid landscape, and there's no water to be found. That might be a matter of survival. But here, running out of wine, this wasn't a crisis per se. It wasn't a matter of survival, but it was still serious. There was social embarrassment that was at stake, but also a possible lawsuit. The groom here is responsible for supplying adequately for the party. And that responsibility came with the implication that if he did not fulfill that, uh, he could actually be taken to court over this. So he would be subject to ridicule at least, but a lawsuit at worst. There's also this matter of the apparent no from Jesus. If you read this, this dialogue between Mary and Jesus, there's something strange about this. Right? Why did Mary bring this matter to Jesus' attention in the first place? Was she expecting a miracle? Well, John tells us this was the first of his signs. And so uh, John at least indicates that he had never performed a miracle. Contrary to the apocryphal writings, it talks about Jesus um, in, in, the, in his childhood performing miracles. That's seemingly not the case. What did Mary want him to do by raising this issue with him? And how does Jesus' response even make sense in light of what she said? It's not his time. It's not his business. What did he mean by that? 
Well, as for the, the mystery of Mary's intent, the meaning of Jesus' response, um, here's, what, here's what I would have for you to see. Because again, I want us to focus on what is clear and really to drive us to Jesus' glory at this wedding. So clearly Mary's mind was preoccupied with the events of this wedding. And rightly so. She had a role here. And so the concern was the problem of no wine. But Jesus' mind, on the other hand, was concerned, preoccupied with a divine schedule. If there's a sense of speed to Mark's gospel with all of his immediately's, there's a sense of schedule in John. At least eight times we read throughout the gospel that Jesus' hour had not come. Then five times, beginning in chapter 12, we read that it had come. And what hour is this referring to? What is Jesus preoccupied with here? Well, it's the hour of his crucifixion, the time of his saving work to be accomplished by his atoning death. This was the time that was imprinted on Jesus' mind. And what he says here to Mary implies that he's, he's not marching to Mary's drum, in other words. He, there was an exact moment that he was to pound out each beat of the Father's will. And he was making clear to Mary and to everyone else that he's not under Mary's direction here. He's come to do the Father's will. And nevertheless, um, Mary anticipates his involvement in the situation. Apparently, she heard a yes in his no, because she goes and briefs the servants that there's going to be this incoming order, uh, because she realized, you know, it's true. He's not my little boy anymore. And the, the prerogatives of motherhood no longer apply. But even so, she, re she responds with faith and she's content to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. He's going to do something. She didn't tell him what she wanted him to do. She just raised the matter with him. But whatever he said indicated to her, he's going to handle it. She had faith that he was going to do something. And so his no was an occasion for her faith to persevere. And we can think of other times in the Gospels, even in John, like in John 4, where you have the, the man whose son is at the point of death. And you have the Gentile woman in Mark 7 who begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus seems to refuse these people help. He says, you won't believe unless you see a sign. He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But the Gentile woman responds, how? Oh, well, you're right, Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll just be on my way. No, she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the children's crumbs. And they, they both, the man with the dying son and the woman with a demon-oppressed daughter, receive their, receive their children back from the Lord. And so we must learn that a no from God, an apparent no, is an occasion for persevering faith. It doesn't mean that you won't receive help. It doesn't mean that he won't work for your good. It means that God's ways are higher than your ways. It means that God acts when and how he pleases, and he's not subject to our wills. He's not limited by how we perceive things. And faith sees every trial, every terror, every trouble, every termination as an occasion for God. To work mightily. It's like the man born blind in John 9. Why was he afflicted this way? The disciples say, must have been because of his sins, maybe because of his parents. But Jesus says, it is that the works of God might be displayed in him. Or like the illness of Lazarus, Jesus says in John 11, his illness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, he says. And so whatever we intend, God may prevent, because he has greater purposes in what he intends to do. And that was the case here. Whether Mary wanted Jesus to 
go and, and commit money so the servants could go get more wine or that he might give a word of wise counsel in this situation. Whatever it was, she left it to Jesus, believing that he would take care of it. And therefore, we can also learn the importance of simply going to Jesus. Do you know, for instance, the, the first recorded words of John in this gospel? Uh, excuse me, the first recorded words of Jesus in this gospel. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 38. Jesus turned to them, the, the two disciples, and said, and saw them following, and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. What are you seeking? Simply, what do you want? And to that he says, Come, and you will see. So the, the wine ran out, and Mary came, saying, They have no wine. <clears throat> or like Mary Magdalene and Martha, who said at that illness of Lazarus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They were believing. They were hoping. They were knowing that Jesus will handle it. They'll leave the matter in his hands. And so, brethren, we need to come simply to Jesus, not even necessarily telling him what we need or how he is to fulfill that, but to say, Lord, I have no strength. Lord, I have no patience. Lord, I have no idea where my keys are. And I need to get go. I need to go to church. I'm going to be late. Lord, I have no idea how I'm going to get through this day. It's always right to go to Christ. And we must guard against any thought that, well, I don't want to bother him with this. You know, I met a man on the streets in Morristown, uh, New Jersey, and he had some very strange views about God. But one was that uh, he is both sovereign and yet he doesn't want to take up God's time with his prayers. He thought God was sovereign Yet, he has limited capacity and ability to hear, so I don't want to trouble him with the minutia of my life. But we must guard against that, that we, we won't bother God with our requests. Or maybe we say in our hearts, I'll just try this one more time, I'll make one more attempt before I pray. No, we must go for answers. We must go to God for blessing, for help, for grace, for deliverance, direction, strength. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Do you believe that? Because John is calling us and pointing us to a Jesus who is able to take care of whatever matter we leave in his hand. He said, I will do it if you ask it in my name, that what? That the Father might be glorified in the Son, John 14, 13. Jesus said that in the day you... you in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. My friends, don't let your heart be troubled. Go to Christ and ask in faith. Don't miss the glory in answered prayer just because you weren't looking for that particular answer at that particular time, or in that particular way. God is active. God is interfering. He's involved. He's at work in your life. And prayer can bring his evident participation. And so maybe there is someone here who has been avoiding going to Christ. Whether you're a believer and you're manifesting unbelief in your daily life, because of particular trials and issues, or because you've been wrestling through life and you have no peace and you know that your parents pray to Jesus, but you refuse to come. To you, he says, come. What do you want him to do? Well, third, we have Jesus' unusual order in verses 6 through 8. Jesus' unusual order. It said, now there were six stone water jars 
there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. First, I want you to see uh, why this was unusual. Why do I say an unusual order from Jesus? Well, first, it had an unusual source because Jesus said this. And not just because he's new on the timeline of history, but orders don't usually come from a guest. Jesus is just a common guest here at the wedding. And also, it had an unusual substance to it. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. And of course, water wasn't the issue here, right? The the servants may have taken this as a strange, uh, foolish order because this isn't what they needed. And it, it might have been met with unwillingness on their part to do what he said. And that seems to be why Mary briefed them ahead of time. She told them, Jesus is going to come, write him a blank check, do whatever he tells you. There was also the the matter of the scale of uh, this order. There were six stone water jars, it says, 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, these were large stone pots. They were uh, perhaps at the wedding. Their purpose would have been hand washing, uh, cleaning certain utensils and so forth. You might think of how the, the Pharisees scrupled over Jesus and his disciples. His disciples didn't wash their hands. Why didn't they wash their hands in accordance with the tradition of the elders? And um, the gospel tells us the Jews did nothing without washing their hands. And so here it seems that these pots would have been used for that. If you do the math, if you were to try to go to the local store and purchase the amount of liquid that we're dealing with here, Jesus produced, he transformed anywhere from six to 900 bottles of wine. This was not an insignificant amount. It was more than they needed, even if it was a big wedding. This was an abundance of wine. This was on a scale that was way out of proportion with the need. And so John draws our attention to this extraordinary scale of the first miracle by making mention of these water pots, these specific ones. Let's see how the servants responded to this unusual order. <clears throat> they, they jump to it, fill the jars, they say, okay, we'll fill them right up to the brim. Draw some, take it right now to the, the master, right away, sir. They filled and took. And like any good servant should, like any good employee should, They jumped at the order and did it without grumbling. They didn't say, I I don't see how, why we have to do this. We don't need water anyway. And who is this guy who's just giving us orders? They didn't delay. They weren't half-hearted in their obedience. It wasn't a half-baked obedience. They filled them right to the brim. And so again, let's stand back and just see here the, the need to learn the virtue of full and simple obedience. These servants are a stellar example for us to follow. They are six-arrow servants. Six-arrow servants. You might remember how in Second Kings chapter 13, you have Elisha and Joash. And Elisha tells King Joash to shoot arrows out of the window. And how many arrows does Joash shoot? Three. And how many arrows did Elisha want him to shoot? At least five, if not six. And Elisha was angry, and God was angry, because he says, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria. But these are six arrow servants. They don't just do as they're told, they go all the way. They did all that they could. And these servants, they didn't have some great faith. They simply obeyed Jesus' orders. Mary didn't have great faith here. She just simply trusted again that Jesus would, what? Take care of it. 
And God rewarded their obedience. He, he awarded it, rewarded it with abundant wine for this wedding. And the lesson here is that he will reward you with abundant wine, with abundant provision, abundant blessing in this church, if you will obey. He will show you his glory, in other words. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus has made promises to his church, to this church, that he would not leave or forsake you, that he would be with you always, even to the end of the age, that he will build this church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he gave us commands to go, to preach, to teach all that he has commanded us, to give, to pray, to fellowship, all the things that we have attended to even this morning. And that's the point, brethren, is that by God's grace, you are continuing in these things. But the lesson for us here is in diligent dependence, to quote Pastor Alan Dunn. It's that simple obedience is not shallow obedience. It's not a matter of checking the box every day that you set aside time to meet with God in private devotions. It's not about checking the box that you've been to church on Sunday. But am I devoting myself to the law of God? And am I seeking to love God with all my heart and all my soul, all my strength? Don't just ask for your request in prayer, but fill it up to the brim with anticipation and pleading. Seek to glorify God, not just in what you do, but also how you do it with a joyful heart, full of faith and thoroughly diligent. That's putting yourself in the path of blessing. As Jesus said in John 13, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In full and faithful obedience, there is great reward. So I encourage you to press on and imitate the example of these simple servants. And for all that Jesus has done, fill your pot up to the brim. Obey. Fourthly, then, we see the wine's unusual order. The wine's unusual order. In verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, Everyone who serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So first see that wine doesn't usually transform out of water this way and I know that might be very straightforward but think about it wine doesn't usually transform out of water this way because at least for me it's easy to come to a text like this in scripture and miss the gravity of what happened again what I want you to see is how is there glory here why is this so glorious what makes this act worthy to be Jesus first miracle And we can have critical thoughts. My thoughts, wine is 80 or 90% water already. So what's the big deal? We don't know whether this was red wine. It could have been white wine, in which case, did the color even change? Was it even that perceptible? But nonetheless, the substance had radically changed. And that's why we need perspective. Because here's the usual order for wine. And I'm no wine expert. But the water for wine, that 80-90% of it that consists of water, that water comes from grapes. Okay, now track with me here. And the grapes come from a vine. The vine has roots. The roots are in soil. How does soil get its water? From the rain. And the rain comes from clouds. The clouds get its water through lakes and streams and so forth. And The point is, if you look up how to make wine today, if you go ahead and Google that, you'll probably find something that says you can have do-it-yourself wine in two weeks, two to three weeks. And sure, the the fermentation process for wine, that can take 
as little as two or three weeks for those sugars to, to change. But wine grapes take an ins- entire season to ripen. And thus, wine is produced uh, just once a year. And if you're just starting out from scratch with all the, the planting, uh, from, from planting to pouring, the whole process could take years, probably three years at a minimum. With all of the care, with all the pruning and fertilization, cultivation that you need, it could probably take three years if you're just getting started. And then what do, what do we all know about wine? Is the best wine the youngest wine? No, the best wine is better the longer that it ages, right? Wine gets better. Uh, the taste improves as, as it ages. And here we have a master of the feast who, if I could say, he's had two or three glasses of wine in his day. He recognized a peculiar uh, quality about this wine. He thought it was remarkably good. And so here we have in Canaan, Messiah's glory on display as he achieves in one instant what normally takes weeks, months, and years to produce. The same sovereign, gracious power that takes the waters of heaven and propels every vine and produces all growth, swells every fruit in its season by season and produces every grape, every apple, every banana on earth, that power was at work here, concentrated and unleashed instantaneously. My friends, this is no mere prophet. He's God in the flesh. He's not limited by any circumstance or time or constraint. He is the Word made flesh, dwelling with man. And notice, my friends, how quiet this transformation was. Okay, this is the miracle. It just happened. The servants fill up the pots. They draw some and take it to the master of the feast, and he tastes it. We're not even precisely sure, in other words, when it happened that the water went from one substance to the next. We don't know if anyone was even watching to catch a glimpse of that liquid changing color. But the master of the banquet tastes this vintage five-second-ago wine, and he had no idea where it, t- where it came from. All the guests are about to get refills in their cups of this fabulously full-bodied, complex, elegant wine with no idea what just happened. Only the servants and a handful of disciples, including John here, Jesus and probably Mary, knew what had just occurred. Jesus' first miracle, the inauguration of his public ministry, and your corner coffee shop or gas station would probably have a bigger audience than was here. There were no fireworks. There was no fanfare. And notice how Jesus never even touches the water. Jesus never uttered a word. And it should remind us of the first creation in Genesis 1.1. God creates the heavens and the earth. But how does he do that? God spoke, we say, and made the earth and all that it contains. But, you know, in Genesis 1.1, God doesn't speak. It says that he created without a word, and then he spoke. And we begin to see Jesus revealing the Father, who is creator of all things, and yet all things were made through Jesus Christ. All things were made through the word in the beginning, And now we see that word become flesh and displaying the same glory. You see how this first sign reveals Jesus' identity as creator God. He's one who has has a sovereign rule over all of the material realm. It authenticates his ministry right from the outset. That same creation power that brought the universe into being brought the blessing of refreshing drink to his people. It wasn't about preserving their life here. Again, it wasn't a matter of survival. It wasn't just meeting a need. It was a work to multiply their joy and enable their 
their continued celebration. And truly, this is representative of Jesus' life's work. Jesus came quietly into the world. Chorus of angels notwithstanding. He came humbly, not as royalty or celebrity, but how? As a servant to lay his life down. It wasn't to create some grand spectacle by throwing himself down a great towering height like the devil had tempted him even just before this episode. He laid down his life for his people so that they may have eternal, eternal abundant life. And so this is the unusualness of the wine's order. But also, more to the master's point, wine doesn't usually flow from poor to good. Now, I don't happen to like wine very much, I'll admit to you. I've tried. Uh, but even if I was a wine connoisseur, I don't know that I would have said this wine was poor. This would have been the best wine that the groom could have afforded or that he had access to. Because again, the common practice here seemed to be to hold back the inferior wine until the guest's ability to taste the complexity and so forth had maybe been dulled a bit from drinking the better wine. And uh, that way they, they might not know it, notice the lower quality of the, uh, the wine, the cheaper wine, you might say, that was served last. And the master of the feast was astonished here. <clears throat> he remarked at the quality of the wine, and it, it was maybe even meant as a compliment here, not just a, a statement, um, the fact that the best was saved for last. That stood out to him. That's unusual. And what it might tell us about the Christian life, about being with Jesus Christ, is that with Christ, the best is saved for last. And here's what I mean by that. You're well acquainted with the popular teaching that you might have your best life now. There's a book of that title. It sold millions of copies. And don't think that that teaching, that, that sort of philosophy, has it all gone away. We have generations now that are seeking to live their best life now because they think that this is the only life they have. And popular culture, politics, your friends, maybe your family, teaches us that this life is all there is. There is no thought of God. There's no afterlife. And that's the very mindset that cries, no justice, no peace. Or my body, my choice. Because for the world, there is no ultimate justice. The justice that we can grasp at must be gained here and now, no matter the cost, because there is no justice after death. And the world teaches that there is no eternal bliss or comfort. There's only the happiness that you create in yourself here and now. And it doesn't matter how many babies have to die in order to generate and preserve your own potential and happiness. But my friends, for the Christian, the best is yet to come. With Christ as our master, we may experience shortages and slights and sadness, but there is a sweet relief when heaven comes. The prophet Haggai describes the experience of those who love the world this way. Those who are just wrapped up in all of the, the world binding around them. Haggai says in chapter 1, verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You see the futility of the world's promises and goods. Life for the worldling is full of those empty promises. It's striving after the wind, and it finishes in ultimate defeat. But to be with Christ is to have abundance, even if you have little now. 
Jesus is no miser. He doesn't take advantage of his people. He doesn't shortchange them. And those of you who, who used to serve Satan know this difference. You know something of what it, what it was like when Satan ran the show. The way of the wicked is hard. But with Christ, there is abundant blessing. And the hope of all of us who trust in him is that this is not as good as it gets. And so may we learn to be content while we wait for him to bring what is infinitely better. We will see him face to face. But until then, may we begin to see even just the edges of his glory. And so finally, with our fifth point, let's look at that glory. Let's see Jesus' glory beheld here. And it brings us to verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This miracle connects us to the beginning and end of John. In John 1.14, John told us that we have seen his glory. Glory is as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And also connects us to the end, which we will consider in a moment. We're seeing his glory, and John testifies that that sight produced tremendous effects, and it had great blessing. And he concludes this tale of the first miracle with a commentary, and there are two parts. One, Jesus manifested his glory, and two, that his disciples believed in him. And so simply first, we see his manifested glory. No other man could be said to have his own glory, and there are two ways, I think, that that this miracle shows it to us from Jesus. The first is that he is Messiah and he's full of grace and truth. And the second, he's glorious in that he makes common things glorious. Jesus has glory because he's Messiah. It wasn't curiosity that brought John to record this miracle. It was an announcement. He'd found the Christ. He'd found the one that was anticipated way back in Genesis 49 when it was prophesied of Judah that from him would come a king. But not just a king, that this king would usher in a new age of God's abundant blessing where wine was plentiful. You can see it in verses 11 and 12 of Genesis 49. Joel likewise envisioned Judah's future as an era of unending wine when it flows over hills and it, it soaks and, and saturates mountains, he says. You see, God cares if wine ends. He's going to keep his promises. And when Messiah shows up, his people are going to pros- prosper. And so this miracle at this simple wedding attests to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. It demonstrates that he is full of grace And truth, God's not going to let the wine end because there's an age that's coming when there will be overflowing wine. The whole earth will be overflowing with the blessing of God because Messiah is now ruling and reigning. And we see the glory of his marvelous grace. As I already said, this was an abundant provision. 900 bottles of wine, and that seems excessive What's the point, we may say? Like in in John 12, Jesus is anointed with expensive ointment, right? That pure nard that was poured over him. And Matthew tells us that the disciples were indignant. And we know Judas especially was upset by this anointing. And they said basically, why this waste? This could have been sold and used for other more noble purposes, Why such an excess? Why go overboard, we might say, at this first miracle? And yet, my friends, God goes overboard all the time. Why does God make the human eye, the human cell, the brain, plant structures? Why are they so wonderfully complex and beautiful? Stupendously so. When we begin to consider the glories of creation, 
There are things there that we see that we might even say we, we don't have ability to comprehend them, let alone if we did have some means to see it, to get down close enough or to zoom out wide enough. We wouldn't even be able to, to understand that. Why does every single tree outside uh, have a uniqueness? I mean, it's not as if we would have the experience to go throughout all the world and say, oh, that, there's a copy right there. That tree is the same as the one over here in this state. We would never notice. Why is every leaf unique? Why are there 7,495 species of frogs? And every year there are more species found. We can look at amazement at the images of stars and galaxies and think, wow, but also think, isn't that a bit excessive? I mean, we'll never be able to go to the outer reaches of the universe. Who's even going to be able to appreciate the unfathomable reaches of space? Why make something like that that's so unimaginably big? It's for his glory. This is what God does every day. The heavens declare the glory of God. And do we hear it? God is not concerned merely to provide for his people the bare minimum to get through life. He here manifests his glory, not with enigmatic or microscopic complexity, but with mercy, with timeliness, with lavishness, kindness, and dignity. Not only helping the groom and his family to avoid humiliation, but the superabundant provision of remarkably good wine. His glory is interwoven with the joy of his people at a wedding. You see that Jesus is a gracious provider. And friend, has something significant come to an end in your life? Do you lack work? Have your plans failed? Have you come up short on wisdom? Do you feel like your well of patience is running dry? Jesus mercifully provides for his people when they are lacking. God always makes sure that his people have what they need according to his infinite wisdom and fatherly kindness. What you lack may not be restored instantly. And like this, like this wedding wine was, but we know that the righteous lack no good thing. And so Christ is glorious. He's glorious as Messiah, the one full of grace and truth. And finally, Christ is glorious in making common things glorious. You know, sometimes magicians awe us with the tricks that they do, but we know that things aren't always as they seem. Whether they perform a trick with playing cards or a wallet or a cup, these kind of things, many times looks are deceiving, and they're actually using a prop. It looks normal, but it's carefully designed to look that way, and really it contains little pockets or little slips of paper that enable them to do the amazing things that they do. There are no tricks here. This is common water. Not only that, but Jesus could have created ex nihilo, right, out of nothing, like he did in the beginning. He could have just said a word or not even said a word, and water could have filled those water pots, all six to 900 bottles worth. John could have highlighted that kind of glory, but he doesn't. Instead, behind the scenes, if we use a righteous imagination here, okay, sanctified imagination, the servants have to strain, they have to heft that water into the pots from wherever the source is until those six pots were full. And then Jesus transforms it. And he transforms it, of course, into common wine. It might have been greatly high-quality wine. It might have been the best wine you've ever tasted, but it was still just wine. It wasn't supernatural. And my friends, the gospel age is an age in which God radically transforms what already is into something glorious. This is the kind of glory that doesn't level a house and build a brand new one. He completely renovates every aspect of the old to make it new. And it's so transformed that you can 
hardly believe that it's the same house, if you will. He takes a common sinner and transforms him into a saint. We're not glorious in and of ourselves, believe me. But we're a work of his glory. We're made glorious because his glory is manifested in us. That's true of conversion, sanctification, and even vocation. Can God really use my life? I mean, me? Do you even know me? Can God use my life? Do I have to be a missionary? Do I have to be a pastor to glorify God? That's the really high-profile life of a Christian, right? Well, Jesus transformed the wine so quickly, so quietly, that no one caught it. It was when everyone was looking away. It happened seemingly while the servants were tending to it in the very very act of obedience, obeying Jesus' instructions. And God is doing something glorious as we go about and tend our day-to-day duties, as we work quietly, as we work by faith, as we are seeking to be faithful and filling our pots to the brim in submission to his will. He's renewing our inner man. He's displaying his grace. He's multiplying fruits of the Spirit. And this Jesus is alive today. And he's working his glorious power every day for believers. Whether it's while you're hosting a wedding or a Zoom meeting, whether it's litigating a case or lighting birthday candles. The Spirit of God is transforming us from one degree of glory to another in menial things as well as on momentous occasions like this wedding. And one day, my friends, Christ will return and he will manifest his glory, this same transforming power, when he entirely renovates this earth, this sin-cursed world. And all, all curse, all sorrow, all chaos will be burned away. And at that time, the one who sits on the throne will declare, Behold, I am making all things new. And there will be, be no more sun, no more moon to illuminate this new earth, but only the glory of God will give it light. And so I trust that now perhaps we can see the connection between John's prologue in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, We have seen his glory. In verse 118, where he says that Jesus has made the Father known. He has explained what God is like in coming. And it also comes under the umbrella of his epilogue in chapter 20, verse 30. And I'll just go there quickly. John chapter 20. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These seven signs in the Gospel of John, including this first, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, unbelieving friends, we've seen Jesus' deity verified in this work. We've seen his power and his grace demonstrated. What reason could you possibly have to keep from coming to this Christ? What keeps you from believing? He has power to turn a stony heart into a heart of flesh. He has power to turn stubbornness into unbelief I know because he did it for me he can turn the desire to sin into the desire to obey but you must go to him to you he says come and remember that there is great blessing when Jesus glory is manifested but there's also great danger in witnessing the glory of God. Our God is a consuming fire. But for those who come to him in faith, he's full of grace. So Christian, press on. Because a glorious day is coming. 
And we await that day when Christ's glory fills the whole earth. And there is no mixture of sin or struggle. It's unveiled and it's uninhibited. And we shall behold his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for not staying hidden in the heavens and standing afar off while we as common sinners die in our sin. We thank you for revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for using the Apostle John to write of this first miracle that we might behold his glory, that we might see that he is full of grace and truth. Our God, we pray for your blessing. We pray that you might give us faith to persevere, faith to believe for the first time, faith to exalt the Lord Jesus as one most glorious and awesome in his power. Father, do a work in our midst and bring your spirit to open up our hearts to these things and to transform us by your glory. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.